You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 11, the siege of Lewisburg, the capture of Fort Frontenac, and the Treaty of Easton. Last week, we looked at General Abercrombie's failed attack on Fort Carillon. At the same time Abercrombie was making his attempt, General Jeffrey Amherst was leading a separate army against Lewisburg. The British had already captured most of Nova Scotia, also known as Acadia, back in 1755 when they expelled thousands of French-Canadian civilians from the region. I discussed this back in Episode 7. The French, however, retained control of Fort Lewisburg on Cape Breton Island. Although today the island is considered part of Nova Scotia, back then they considered it a separate entity. And if you want to get a better look at the geography, I have maps of all this as well as pictures and sources at this podcast's companion website, amrevpodcast.blogspot.com. That's A-M-R-E-V podcast.blogspot.com. Now, Fort Lewisburg controlled the mouth of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the only water entry into the St. Lawrence River, which was, in turn, the only effective supply route for the French in the Great Lakes region. Taking Lewisburg would cut off Canada from France. But the fort was an impressive one and would not fall easily. It had fallen before, though. Just over a decade earlier, a force of mostly British colonists from New England had captured Fort Lewisburg during the War of Austrian Succession, also known as King George's War in America. They had done so at great cost and were outraged when London gave the fort back to the French as part of a treaty ending that war in exchange for concessions in Europe. In 1757, William Pitt had dispatched General Loudon to take Lewisburg. After Loudon's arrival, he looked at the French defenses, decided an attack was impossible, and returned back to New York without even making an attempt. His failure was a big part of his recall in December of that year. Much of Loudon's concern in 1757 was that a large French fleet supported the fort and prevented the British fleet from attacking. In 1758, the French navy was mostly gone, with only a half dozen warships in the harbor. The British Navy effectively prevented any French naval relief force from arriving, so chances of victory looked much better this time. General Amherst commanded a total British force of about 14,000 soldiers, along with 12,000 sailors and marines under the command of Admiral Edward Bosquin. The French had only 3,500 soldiers and another 3,500 sailors and marines, but had the vast defenses of the fort for protection. The British could have approached by land from Nova Scotia, but doing so would have meant a long, hard march over rugged terrain. Instead, General Amherst rather recklessly attempted a water landing on the island in the face of the enemy. It could have been a disaster. Colonel Wolfe 
in charge of the landing, called it rash and ill-advised. In the 18th century, water landings in the face of the enemy were extremely difficult, as troops had to row slowly ashore and disembark and form lines all in the face of enemy fire. In this case, however, they got lucky, landing the troops with only about 100 casualties. Without naval support, the French defenders could make a siege painful for the attackers, but could not prevent an eventual loss if the British decided to launch a conventional siege. This involved entrenching artillery while slowly digging ever closer entrenchments until finally the walls of the fort would be demolished. Now, unlike Abercrombie at Carillon, Amherst sensibly elected to go with the conventional siege option. After the June 8th landing, the British began digging their first entrenchments for their cannon. Over the next few weeks, the British Navy worked to take out the few French warships in the harbor, as well as several island batteries. The British invaders took several hills near the fort, continually moving their entrenchments closer and closer, battering the walls of the fort, and slowly taking out most of the French defenses. By July 3rd, they were within 600 feet of the main walls and continued to bombard them. The French garrison continued to put up a defense, but outnumbered, they could not go on the offensive and could only slow an inevitable loss unless by some miracle a French fleet could relieve them. That miracle did not come. By July 26, the British had destroyed or captured all of the French naval vessels supporting the fort. The army and navy were bombarding the city from all sides. British artillery took out the last French cannon and British artillery breached the walls of the fort. With more than a third of its defenders dead or incapacitated, and having held out for nearly two months with no hope of relief, the French commander decided that he had conducted an honorable defense and reluctantly asked for terms of surrender. Despite the valiant defense, Amherst was in no mood to give generous terms. The memory of the Fort William Henry massacre was still too recent. The French defenders would become prisoners of war. All French civilians on the island would be deported back to France, over 8,000 men, women, and children. The French had no choice but to accept the terms. After the fort fell, the British army completely destroyed the fort, even tearing down its walls. That way, politicians in London could never again return the fort to the French. The British victory at Louisbourg was really the first good news London had heard from America in years. William Pitt received word of the victory at Lewisburg that autumn. He literally hugged the messenger, so overjoyed, finally getting some good news from America. His risky investments seemed to be paying off. Pitt instructed Amherst to continue to attack the French along the Great Lakes, establishing British control and expelling the French from the continent. Amherst's second-in-command at Lewisburg, General James Wolfe, returned to England for health reasons after the battle. Wolfe had not been injured in the battle, but suffered from an ongoing illness that seemed to flare up when under difficult conditions. Since he was in London while Amherst remained in America, Wolfe became the face of victory for the English people and was the toast of the town. Pitt ended up rewarding him with an independent command and instructions to return to America and take Quebec the following year. The fall of Louisbourg in 1758, along with British ability to control the Atlantic, effectively severed New France from the mother country. 
it also opened up Quebec and other inland French cities to British naval attack, as the British Navy could simply now sail up the St. Lawrence River. The fall of Louisbourg marked a major shift in future battles. Without relief from France, New France would slowly suffocate under the pressure of British offensives. It was still too early to know this, but the British victory at Louisbourg would mark the beginning of the end for the French in Canada. But as the siege of Louisbourg was reaching its end, General Abercrombie was still licking his wounds from the disastrous attempt to take Fort Carillon back in New York. He probably had a good idea that his failure to take Carillon, combined with General Amherst's success in Louisbourg, would mean that he would be out of a job soon and sent home in disgrace that winter. And it was also likely that General Amherst would replace him as North American commander. This thought probably motivated General Abercrombie, who was normally slow and cautious, to try something a little more daring. Fort Frontenac was on the northern coast of Lake Ontario. It was not a primary target for Pitt, Abercrombie, or much of anyone else in the senior leadership. It was not listed as a major objective at the beginning of the season. The fact that it became a target of assault at all was probably due to the obsession of one man, Lieutenant Colonel John Bradstreet. Now, we last met John Bradstreet last week when he took command of the battlefield after General Howe fell mortally wounded in the first offensive against Fort Caroline. The son of a British officer and an Acadian mother, Bradstreet had been a career officer with notable service in King George's War during the 1740s. General Shirley, who had worked with Bradstreet earlier in the war, made Bradstreet his adjutant general. Despite the close association with the hated Shirley, Loudon retained Bradstreet as a highly competent officer and promoted him to lieutenant colonel in 1757. Bradstreet had convinced Loudon to let him lead an attack against Fort Frontenac, but before that attack could get underway, Loudon was recalled to England, and Pitt's new plan of attack, which did not include Frontenac, superseded all prior plans. After the defeat at Fort Carillon, Bradstreet saw an opportunity to revive his plan to attack Frontenac. He convinced General Abercrombie to detach 5,600 men under the command of Brigadier General John Stanwix, and with Bradstreet in second in command, to distress the enemy on Lake Ontario and if practicable, attack Fort Frontenac. Although Abercrombie was not known for using his own initiative to start new offensives, he really had little to lose at this point since he was likely facing recall anyway. The leadership kept the mission against Frontenac a secret. They maintained a cover story that the detachment was planning to rebuild Fort Bull, which you may recall General Webb had burned in a panic back in 1756, This would provide a defensive point against French attack and would reinstate needed trading posts for the Iroquois. In fact, Bradstreet planned to take his troops from there up to Lake Ontario along with several cannon, and from there the force would cross the lake in small boats and conduct the surprise raid on Frontenac. Bradstreet used speed and surprise to capture the French breastworks and emplace his cannon only 150 yards from the fort's walls on August 26, 1758. The French commander almost immediately called for surrender, even though it meant he and his men would be taken as prisoners of war and shipped back to Albany. The fort had only 110 soldiers to defend it, not even enough to man all the cannon in the fort. 
the bulk of the Fort Garrison had been detached to participate in the successful defense of Fort Carillon and had not yet returned. So the 2,200 British soldiers surrounding the fort meant certain defeat. Fort Frontenac had been a major storage depot for the French. In addition to the fort's 60 cannon, the British took control of more food and supplies than they could possibly carry. Bradstreet's orders were to destroy the fort, not hold it. The French still controlled Lake Ontario, and a counterattack was a real possibility. So the British loaded as many arms and supplies as they could carry in their ships, as well as the captured French ships. Initially, the British had taken the small French garrison as prisoners of war. But they were so overloaded with supplies that Bradstreet decided to free the French prisoners and allow them to leave on the promise that an equal number of English prisoners would be released soon in exchange. Fearing a counterattack, Bradstreet burned the fort along with the supplies he could not carry. This would further reduce the already depleted French supplies for the year. On August 28th, only two days after arriving, the British slipped back across the lake to rejoin their main force. Now, upon his return, Bradstreet asked to make a similar raid against Fort Niagara. But for now, Abercrombie had had enough initiative and refused to authorize a second raid. With his plans to engage in further raids now put on hold, Bradstreet wrote a self-promoting pamphlet to be published anonymously back in England. It criticized Abercrombie's timidity in taking the initiative to control the Great Lakes and promoted Bradstreet's own valiant efforts. Bradstreet received a promotion to full colonel, but his superiors in America were not happy with his criticism of his superiors and his self-promotion. He ended up as assistant quartermaster general in Albany, a financially lucrative position, but not one that would lead to further glory and promotion. As I mentioned, the fall of Louisbourg cut off France from its forces in New France, in other words Canada, preventing them from providing more supplies or reinforcements. This gave the advantage going forward to the British. The destruction of Fort Frontenac sped up that advantage. By destroying most of the New France's supplies there, the French were unable to supply or provide other support for many of the other frontline forts. The French also lost arms, ammunition, and supplies that they planned to provide to their Indian allies in the Ohio Valley. The loss of these supplies would help tip the balance in future negotiations and fighting. So the British had now cut off the French in Canada from their supply lines in Europe. They had destroyed much of the French supplies in the raid on Frontenac, and the British also had more than double the number of soldiers in the field. If the French had any chance of preventing defeat, it would require the full efforts of their Indian allies. French General Montcalm, as I've said before, did not like using Indians, and the massacres at Fort Oswego and Fort William Henry only reinforced this opinion. The Fort William Henry incident had created a real divide so that most tribes in Canada were now sitting out the war. And even if they wanted to come back, most of those tribes were still being ravaged by smallpox epidemics brought back through the prisoners captured at Fort William Henry. In the Ohio Valley, though, local tribes were still putting up a pretty successful campaign against the British and its colonies. The local tribes, particularly the Delaware, were still upset with prior British colonial land grabs and the fact that the Iroquois had ratified those land grabs after being paid off, leaving the Delaware to suffer. The Delaware did not want the Iroquois to negotiate for them. 
the British Indian agent, Sir William Johnson, who had been Britain's Indian agent since the beginning of the war, was a big advocate of Iroquois control. He had been adopted into the Mohawk tribe and had a common-law Mohawk wife with whom he had eight children. Johnson was not about to undercut the Iroquois authority since the Mohawk were one of the six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. As a result, the Delaware were more and more siding with the French against the English and Iroquois. In July 1758, General Forbes, who you may recall is still slowly moving across western Pennsylvania toward Fort Duquesne, requested and received permission from Abercrombie to negotiate directly with the Delaware. We're going to talk more about General Forbes' advance next week, but his decision to start negotiating directly with the Delaware is going to have a major impact on the course of events. What was really surprising was that Abercrombie had given him permission to go forward with said negotiations. This was really an odd move for Abercrombie, who tended to be a general who would follow orders, stay inside the rules, and never use his own initiative. Allowing Forbes to negotiate directly meant he was cutting out the Iroquois as well as Johnson, the Indian agent for Britain. Johnson's royal commission as a colonel, in addition to his provincial commission as a major general, and his receipt of a title of nobility a few years earlier, clearly meant he had the favor of very important people back in London. Undercutting such a powerful man was not the sort of action Abercrombie would normally take. But he did, and Forbes used this authority to try to work out deals with the local tribes directly. Now also during the summer and fall of 1758, negotiations continued in eastern Pennsylvania between the eastern Delaware chiefs led by T.D. Usung and Pennsylvania's colonial leaders. Back in 1757, the various sides had generally come to terms not to kill each other, basically by saying, we'll resolve our differences later. Well, now that it was 1758, T.D. Usung was pointing out that it was later now and they'd still not resolve their differences. T.D. Usung wanted a reevaluation of the walking purchase and a guarantee of a land reserve for his people in the Wyoming Valley, which is today northeastern Pennsylvania. The Easton Convention of 1758 was much larger than the prior year. More than 500 Indians from 13 different nations attended, each with their own agendas, and these included a delegation of western Delaware from the Ohio Valley. Like TDU Sung, most wanted guarantees that their land would not be overrun with British settlers, and their support was critical if the British ever wanted to take Fort Duquesne. The Iroquois also sent representatives trying to reassert control over the Delaware and making clear that they could not cut independent deals with the British or their colonists. Pennsylvania leaders and British agents present would love to have simply worked out a deal with the compliant Iroquois, but they knew that if the Delaware and other local tribes did not find the deal acceptable, they would simply remain pro-French in the ongoing war, despite what the Iroquois told them to do. By October 1758, the various groups had worked out a resolution. The major concession of the treaty was to cede back all English claims to land west of the Allegheny Mountains. Although the Iroquois would retain control of the lands, the English were permitted to negotiate directly with local tribes to resolve local issues. In other words, the Iroquois would not be permitted to undercut the Delaware in the Ohio Valley and sell out their land from under them. 
that was good enough to bring the western Delaware back onto the side of the British. By this time, British victories in Louisbourg and Frontenac were well known. The French had their supplies cut off and were clearly on the defensive. For the Delaware, they realized they had better cut a deal with the winning side that protected their land. But while the western Delaware were cutting this deal, Chief Titiusung of the eastern Delaware now found himself isolated at the conference. The Iroquois had reasserted their authority over him, and now that the western Delaware had cut a separate deal for their land, the eastern Delaware posed no serious threat. If they went to war, they could be cut down by the Iroquois and the colonists. Titiusung, realizing this, spent most of the rest of the conference getting drunk and rambling angrily. In the end, he only left the conference with more promises that they would look into the terms of the walking purchase at some later date and would refer the issue of the Wyoming Valley Reservation back to the Iroquois Council for further consideration. Of course, neither of these ever resulted in any satisfaction for the eastern Delaware. But with peace now in place with the western Delaware, General Forbes could finally move forward with his plans to take Fort Duquesne. Next week, General Forbes makes his final assault of Fort Duquesne, and the British follow up that by capturing Fort Niagara and finally Fort Caroline as well. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.